welcome to the introductory lecture of Modern World History. Um, this is an undergraduate uh, survey course that deals with the early modern and the modern world. Um, but in order to do that, occasionally we are going to refer to ideas and uh, information that comes from the ancient and medieval world. And students in this class may have uh, varying levels of familiarity with that earlier history. You may or you may not have taken uh, World History One, for example. Um, and so we're going to cover a little bit of material here briefly in this, um, in this single introductory lecture from before the modern era. Um, occasionally, understanding in the rest of the class will require a little bit of background uh, to help you contextualize the material that we're going to be covering. So this introduction is going to provide that background. And the first of those background events that I want to cover is uh, what we call the Agricultural Revolution. Um, although that name might be a little bit misleading, it didn't necessarily happen all at once, and it certainly didn't happen in one place. Uh, farming developed in a number of different parts of the ancient world, and mostly developed well before the beginning of recorded history. And that means that there aren't written records for us to refer to. So it's very difficult for historians to accurately describe early agricultural societies in as much detail as we would certainly like to be able to do. Also, uh, because there aren't the types of written records that historians typically use to understand the past, we're forced to rely to a much greater extent than usual on people in other fields, on archeologists, on anthropologists, and on specialists in other types of data that we can use to inform our histories. And uh, because the science that supports these fields has been advancing very rapidly, and sometimes um, in abrupt changes over recent years, our understanding of the prehistoric period has also changed and has sometimes changed very abruptly. Farming, for example, was once believed, at least by Western historians, to have developed in the Middle East at sites such as Jericho and Mesopotamia in what was called the Fertile Crescent uh, six or 7,000 years ago. When the ancestors of modern Europeans uh, and of the historians um, were usually credited with the invention of agriculture. Uh, more recently, responding to a growing body of evidence that prehistoric farming had been happening in places like Africa, India, China, and the Americas, some scholars have suggested that agriculture may have developed more or less independently and simultaneously. There have been theories that at a certain stage of development it would just spontaneously happen uh, in several different regions of the world. Um, but it was a little bit difficult to explain and imagine how this type of parallel development could have occurred uh, with people in different parts of the world not only making the same basic discoveries but making them pretty much simultaneously. Even more recently uh, some scientists have begun to suspect that this confusion may actually reflect a difficulty in finding archaeological evidence 
since plant materials tend to decay in the ground much more quickly than things like arrowheads and stone spear points. And we're talking about the Neolithic period, the late Stone Age. Uh, as some people have even suggested that we may actually be thinking wrongly about agriculture. It now seems very likely that agriculture probably began in a very gradual process that goes back much farther than we had previously imagined. Uh, humans as a species began in uh, southern Africa about 300,000 years ago. And then after a population crisis about 150,000 years ago, uh, modern humans seem to have left Africa between 80,000 and 100,000 years ago. Uh, they were not the first members of the human family to have left Africa. Homo erectus has um, been in Asia and Europe for over a million years. Uh, Neanderthals, Denisovans, uh, all lived in Europe and Asia. Uh, and actually until very recently when they were in their turn displaced by modern humans, by Homo sapiens. In the early millennia of their spread across the connected continents of Africa and Europe and Asia, modern humans, Homo sapiens, lived uh, mobile lives as hunter-gatherers. According to archaeologists, uh, many of them left traces of their presence uh, in the area of Central Europe, north of the Black Sea, between about 80,000 and about 50,000 years ago. Although they may have uh, favored certain locations for long periods of time, uh, ancient people were, in the end, forced to follow the herds that they hunted, uh, and also to seek new food sources when conditions changed. Climate changed very slowly, but over such a long period of time, the cycle of glaciation actually became a factor in human development, especially the most recent ice age that began about 36,000 years ago and lasted until about 11, 12,000 years ago. Uh, this ice age displaced both animal and human populations. Uh, and it also allowed uh, some people to migrate to the Americas, as we'll see. Now, agriculture probably began when these hunter-gatherers began favoring certain plants and began um, weeding around them, pulling up the plants that were obstructing them, uh, that were making it difficult to get to them so that they could, the plants could grow larger and uh, it would make them easier to reach. At some point, people discovered that seeds that were dropped on the ground or thrown into rubbish heaps sprouted into new plants. People probably then began planting or transplanting their favorites closer to home so they wouldn't have to always go out and trek far away looking for food. Uh, and this horticulture, or part-time farming, may have begun really well before these ancient humans began to spread apart, leave that Black Sea area, uh, and move westward, some of them into Europe, and eastward, others into Asia. Uh, and that would explain that seemingly coincidental parallel development later of farming across much of the globe around the same time. Uh, 
these various regions ultimately developed, each of them, their distinct versions of what we now recognize as agriculture from a deep, deep pool of common techniques and understanding. Wheat was discovered uh, in that region that we call the Fertile Crescent, stretching from the Persian Gulf um, through the Middle East into the Eastern Mediterranean uh, and Egypt. Uh, as cultivation spread and as uh, surpluses of grain were produced, civilizations like those of Egypt and Mesopotamia, which is today's Iraq, uh, rose between about 6,000 and about 5,000 years ago. About the same time, possibly a little bit earlier, uh, residents of the Pearl River estuary in what is now China began cultivating rice in flooded fields called paddies. Uh, the three other staple crops of the modern world, corn, potatoes, and cassava, were all developed between 9,000 and 7,000 years ago by natives of uh, the Americas, as we'll discuss briefly. So this transition from uh, nomadic hunt and gathering groups to uh, a more complex society based on agriculture uh, and also based on the specialization and the segmentation of work allowed for the development of sedentary cultures uh, with established governments. People were actually able to literally put down roots. Uh, and also the development of writing systems and number systems and hierarchical social systems uh, that were then able to build impressive structures, temples and, uh, and tombs and things like that. Uh, and to defend and sometimes expand their borders, and then also to create art and music. Uh, and we'll look briefly at each of those ancient societies in Africa, Europe, and Asia, and the Americas to prepare for our coverage of each of those regions in uh, the modern period in the opening chapters of the course. Uh, before I continue, I do want to uh, pause briefly and ask a couple of uh, questions um, that you might want to think about, that you might want to prepare uh, to discuss when we do meet to discuss these things. Uh, and, and they are, uh, for this section, the questions are these. Uh, first of all, do you think it's significant that historians have to rely on information from other fields, like archaeology, to tell the story of the ancient world? And um, what types of things do you think are implied by that dependence. Um, secondly, why do you think it might matter where agriculture was first developed um, or where historians and societies believe agriculture may first have been developed? And then finally, um, does considering uh, human migrations uh, out of Africa in the deep past and then throughout Europe and Asia affect any of your opinions that you may have held earlier in your life about things like race and ethnicity. Just some things to think about, and I'll be asking uh, more questions as I pause between some of these sections. Uh, so to move on, the ancient dynasties of um, North Africa and of the Eastern Mediterranean um, begin with the dynasties of the Egyptian Empire. Uh, which developed along the Nile beginning around uh, 3100 BCE, so over 5,000 years ago, uh, building, again, on those wheat surpluses that were made possible uh, by the annual flooding of the Nile River. Uh, 
uh, among the most visible and lasting achievements of these Egyptian empires, which lasted over 2,000 years, uh, are the pyramids of Giza, uh, which were built between 2600 and 2400 BCE, so at the very early stages of that culture, uh, to serve as burial tombs for several emperors. The Egyptian empires lasted, as I said, for nearly 2300 years before being conquered um, in succession by the Assyrians and then by the Persians and then by the Greeks from about 700 BCE to about um, 330, 332. They were followed by the societies of ancient Greece, uh, particularly of Athens, uh, which very directly influenced uh, the culture and the intellectual life uh, of Europe and the Middle East in the medieval, uh, the, the late ancient and the medieval and uh, the early modern and even to the present day. Uh, Greek dramas and tragedies and comedies continue to be studied and performed. Uh, Pythagoras's um, mathematical discoveries uh, and Euclid's geometry uh, are still taught in schools. And the thinking of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle are still the basis of Western philosophy and political science today. Uh, the words democracy and republic, in fact, come from um, ancient Greek. Greek ideas and culture were adopted by the Romans then uh, and spread throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, and indeed, actually, many of the Greek gods became and goddesses became Roman gods and goddesses under different names. Ancient Rome was actually a republic for nearly 500 years. Uh, and during that time, it expanded its territory from the city-state of Rome on the central western coast of the Italian peninsula to nearly all of the lands surrounding the Mediterranean Ocean, uh, including North Africa, the former Greek and Egyptian empires, and even extending out into the Atlantic uh, to conquer parts of England. The Romans uh, spread their language, Latin, and their Latin alphabet to Western Europe. Um, and after a period of political crisis, the Republic finally ended and was replaced with an empire under the first Emperor Caesar Augustus in 27 BCE. Uh, the Egyptian, uh, Greek, Assyrian, Persian, and Roman empires, all of the empires of uh, old Europe, uh, all encountered the Hebrew people, uh, who maintained their own small independent uh, kingdom of Israel around the year 1000 BCE. Um, the Hebrew prophet Moses, influenced by uh, spiritual ideas from various societies, uh, developed the concept of monotheism, only one God. Uh, Moses' monotheism was an unusual innovation in an era when most societies uh, worshipped several gods and goddesses, and where many actually honored the gods and goddesses of other cultures as well. Uh, the Ten Commandments and the laws and regulations attributed to Moses in the Torah not only formed the basis of Judaism, but also of Christianity and later of Islam, all of these uh, religions which worship only a single God. Uh, shortly after the Romans uh, conquered the region that had been the kingdom of Israel, a character named Jesus of Nazareth 
uh, a Jewish thinker, began apparently preaching a more peaceful and inclusive religion of salvation. Uh, he was turned over, the story goes, by enemies to the Romans who crucified him in approximately 33 CE. Uh, his followers, uh, especially uh, Paul, who was one of the leaders, although uh, was said never to have actually met him in life, uh, preached that Jesus was the Son of God and invited Gentiles as well as Jews, so people who were not Jews as well as members of the Jewish faith, uh, to join this new religion. Uh, and this new religion was especially embraced by the poor and by slaves in the Roman Empire, uh, who were attracted to the promises of um, forgiveness and also of a single, all-powerful God's unending love uh, and of an eternal life after death. The Romans saw this new religion as a challenge to the authority of the state religion, and uh, so, as a result, sometimes persecuted the Christians. Uh, in 330 CE, the Roman Emperor Constantine actually banned the persecution of Christians and um, then converted to the faith and ultimately made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. Um, by the year 400, Christianity had replaced the worship of Rome's traditional gods and goddesses um, as that state religion of the empire. Uh, and because Constantine embraced the new faith, the Roman Catholic Church that resulted from that is the most direct descendant of the Roman Empire. The Pope, the leader of the Catholic Church, still lives in Rome. And the vestments, uh, the clothing of Catholic priests, and actually also of the clergy of some other liturgical Christian denominations, is very similar to what was worn by 4th century Roman officials. So before we move on, a couple more questions for thought or for discussion. Uh, firstly, on what types of um, historical evidence do you think that these references to people such as Moses and uh, Jesus and then Muhammad, who we're going to talk about next, are based? Uh, and how might these sources differ from the archaeological sources that I was talking about previously? And how might that be significant? Secondly, um, how do you think the cultures of Europe um, of ancient Europe continue to influence the modern world. Now moving on to the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, Constantine, the emperor, moved the capital of the Roman Empire to a second imperial city in 330 uh, CE, about the same time that he outlawed the discrimination against Christians. Uh, Byzantium, which he renamed uh, Constantinople, had already been a powerful uh, fortress controlling the Bosphorus Strait, which connects the Black Sea to the Mediterranean, and uh, as a result is sort of the gateway between Europe and Asia. The city of Byzantium was already over a thousand years old when Constantine moved there, and it served as the eastern administrative center of the empire, um, and it actually continued using Greek rather than Latin as its official language of government. Um, and because of that, a somewhat separate Christian church developed in this Greek part of the empire. Um, 
And in addition to the language difference, um, there were some differences in um, rules. It believed that um, archbishops controlled spiritual matters as a group and that the Pope in Rome was no more than another one of these archbishops who ought to be equal with the others. And this difference of opinion, of course, caused friction. And by about 1000 CE, Catholics in the West and Greek Orthodox in the East split from one another. The first great schism of the church. But before that schism, during the fifth century, uh, Germanic tribes from Northern Europe invaded the Western Roman Empire. Um, they actually were fleeing from Attila the Hun and from other invaders uh, from Asia. Eventually, the city of Rome itself was sacked by people who were called barbarians uh, in 476. Western Europe was then divided among these various Germanic uh, tribal warlords. Uh, but although the empire had ended uh, in the West, the Roman Catholic Church remained strong and viable. And over the next 500 years, uh, Christianity and Roman Catholicism spread throughout the region and was embraced by a lot of these local and regional uh, Germanic and Frankish rulers. Uh, the church preserved a lot of the culture of the old Roman Empire, including its language, Latin, which was used in uh, Catholic liturgies and ceremonies until actually the middle of the 20th century in 1965. Uh, Germanic languages, though, were transformed through their contact with Latin speakers. Um, the English language is a good example of that. Uh, it has both um, Germanic and Latin influences. Um, an example of that would be how time is measured. The months of the years of the year are all from the Roman calendar, uh, with the first six months being named after the Roman gods. And then July and August, the seventh and eighth month, are named after the early emperors, Julius, Caesar, and Augustus. Uh, and uh, the remaining months are actually just the ordinal numbers, 7 through 10, September, October, November, December. Right? Although, in a confusing change, the Catholic Church decided to begin the calendar in January, which actually makes December the 12th month instead of the 10th. Now, on the other hand, the days of the week reveal both Latin and Germanic influences. Saturday, Sunday, and Monday come from sacred Roman celestial objects, Saturn, the moon, and the sun, obviously. Um, but then Spanish and French and other um, Romance languages continue along that vein with Latin-influenced names, while English, for example, then um, moves on to honor the gods Tiu, Woden, or Odin, Thor, and Freya in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday for the remainder of the week. Now let's move on to Islam, which began in 610 when the prophet Muhammad began preaching and organizing this new religion, Islam, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula in the region uh, around Mecca. The prophet's uh, teachings which were later gathered into a book called the Holy Quran, um, built upon both Judaism and Christianity. Uh, Mecca itself had long been a 
religious pilgrimage site um, honoring the Hebrew patriarch Abraham. And uh, Jesus is actually considered in Islam as an important prophet, although not as a divine character. Uh, by the time of Muhammad's passing in 632, Islam was well established in the Eastern Arabian Peninsula. And within the next hundred years, it became the dominant religion in North Africa, the Middle East, and Persia. By 1200, Muslim rulers also dominated South Asia and the Iberian Peninsula. Islam brought stability to the region and um, trade, learning, and the exchange of ideas flourished. Um, partly they brought stability through military conquest, of course. Uh, but the extent of Muslim trade is also notable uh, in the establishment of, uh, for example, a center of Islamic study in Timbuktu in the middle of northern sub-Saharan Africa, located all the way across the Sahara Desert. Uh, from Mecca in what is today Mali. Uh, religious conversion often accompanied uh, either military conquest or merchant activity. Um, in fact, um, the nation with the largest Muslim population in the world, Indonesia, is a Southeast Asian archipelago located thousands of miles from the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and it was converted when Arab traders introduced their religion there. Uh, beginning in the 1200s. The Arab world benefited from um, relatively stable administrations and uh, commercial links that allowed traders to um, bring new technology, science, and mathematics from places where it was be de being developed, like India and China, into the regions that they controlled, which then allowed Arab scholars to refine these ideas in their own centers of learning and universities. Uh, Muslims, like Christians, Jews, and the followers of most other world religions, um, share common sacred writings and liturgical traditions, uh, but they're also divided by different theological interpretations and uh, religious practices. In Islam, the principal division uh, stems from an early debate over who should lead the religion after the death of the prophet. Should it be a member of his family? Or should it just be someone who is an effective and dynamic leader and um, a scholar? Uh, Sunnis, who make up 90% of Muslims today, uh, come from that group who believed in the latter, that it should just be an effective leader. While Shiites, who make up about 10% of Muslims, include the um, often martyred descendants of the Prophet Muhammad as the early principal imams or spiritual leaders of Islam. Um, and as we'll discuss later in the course, um, the rulers of Persia, today's Iran, embraced Shiism, while most of their neighbors became Sunni. Although the Sunnis and the Shiites um, fought one another in the early days of Islam, many have also lived together in relative peace for centuries. Um, notably until the last few decades, um, which we will examine in much more detail in later chapters. So before we move on, again, um, let's stop, pause briefly, and uh, think about these discussion questions. Uh, firstly, uh, how do you think the memory of the Roman 
empire affected Europeans as history continued. Uh, and then secondly, how do you think this conflict between Muslims themselves, and then especially between Muslims and Christians, shaped European history? And we will talk much more about that as we move forward, but I thought it would be something for you to speculate on and think about before we do that. Now, moving to Asia. Uh, in the region that is now Pakistan and India, um, the Indus Valley cities uh, such as uh, Mohenjo-Daro and Harappa, uh, which uh, reached their maturities by about 2600 BCE, or over 4600 years ago, um, each housed between 30,000 and 60,000 people. Uh, these cultures, again, grew on an agricultural base of wheat and barley and millet. Uh, the permanent nature of sedentary agricultural societies uh, led to not only the building of social order, but also to thinkers considering in more complex ways how people should live, what was the correct way of living in the world. Uh, and that led to the establishment of not only social orders and civil structures, but religions uh, that are the ancestors to many of the world governments and religions that still exist today. Um, in China, after, again, thousands of years of hunting and gathering, the ancient people of northern China began uh, cultivating millet and rice um, at about the same time and in many of the same ways that the people of the Middle East began growing wheat and the people of the Americas began growing maize and potatoes and cassava, which we'll talk about as we move forward. Um, China's recorded history began about 2000 BCE, uh, or over 4000 years ago. So historians have a pretty good idea what happened there in the distant past. Um, based on irrigated rice agriculture, the population of China was able to explode to over 50 to 60 million people as early as 2000 years ago. This population was originally divided into a lot of small kingdoms uh, whose ruling families were connected to each other through political marriages and alliances. But beginning around uh, 221 BCE, the most influential and powerful family organized the kingdoms into an empire that covered much of the territory of modern-day China. This empire lasted over 2,000 years under a series of over a dozen different dynasties, and only ended with the fall of the Qing Dynasty in 1911 and the establishment of the Republic of China. The earliest emperors of China began large public works programs, including uh, the construction of what they called at the time Long Walls, uh, which later formed the basis of the Great Wall of China, um, and that was built partly to protect them from northern tribes and partly to expand their territory and push it northward. Around 200 BCE, the second Chinese dynasty, the Han, established a trade route called the Silk Road, linking China through Central Asia with Europe. Artifacts from the Roman Empire have been found in China, and silk, which China invented and developed well before 3000 BCE, uh, became a luxury fabric 
in Greece and Rome. Uh, the next dynasty, the Sui, uh, dug the Grand Canal to connect the Yellow and the Yangtze rivers in about the 6th century uh, CE. This canal allowed rice and wheat and millet to be transported on a protected inland waterway instead of being shipped out on the oceans where um, shipments could be threatened by pirates. China also led the world in iron, copper, and porcelain production, as well as in what are called the four great inventions, the compass, gunpowder, papermaking, and printing. So before we move on to the Americas, let's again stop and think about this. Um, so a couple of questions for you. Is it significant, do you think, that China and India have always been the center of world population? Secondly, uh, why do agricultural surpluses actually encourage the building of cities and kingdoms and empires? And then finally, uh, is it surprising to you at all that the Han and the Roman empires existed simultaneously and that there was actually uh, trade between Asia and Europe at this period along the Silk Road? Now, let's move to the isolated Americas. The people living in the Americas were separated by climate change from Eurasia for nearly 12,000 years after the end of the Ice Age that created this landmass known as Beringia between what is now Alaska and um, Siberia and allowed Eurasians to live on that land and actually over time to cross over it into the Americas. During this period of isolation, which we should remember is twice as long as all of recorded history, the Native Americans were not idle. Uh, when they arrived in the Americas, they found very few large animal species available to domesticate. Uh, like Europeans, Asians, and Africans, uh, Native Americans experienced their own agricultural revolution after a long period of hunting and gathering. Uh, but instead of domesticating things like cattle and horses and sheep and goats and pigs and chickens, which Europeans, Asians, and Africans did, uh, the Americans, not finding animals they could domesticate, developed plants, creating three of the world's current top five staple crops. Uh, a staple crop is one that produces uh, the foods that provide the greatest percentage of the calories that people eat. Uh, it might surprise you that today, only about 15 staple crops account for 90% of the calories that people eat every day. Uh, the top five are responsible for nearly three quarters of all of our calories, including the feed for the animals whose meat we eat. Uh, they were all discovered or invented by ancient people between six and 10,000 years ago. And uh, three of those five were invented in the Americas. The world's top five staples today in order of importance are maize or corn, rice, wheat, potatoes, and cassava. Only rice and wheat were known to Europe, Asia, and Africa before contact with the Americas in the 15th century. Natives of what is now Mexico uh, developed maize from a native grass called teosinte, um, beginning about 9,000 years ago. And its use spread uh, widely, it spread across really 
almost every part of the Americas. Uh, over generations, women, who were the farmers of ancient Mexico, uh, selectively bred this grass to produce more and bigger seed heads. Uh, maize is currently the most important staple food in the world for both human and animal feed, uh, as well as having a number of industrial uses like ethanol, corn syrup, and plastics. Andean natives in what is now Peru and Bolivia uh, created many varieties of potatoes beginning about 10,000 years ago. Um, Andean women, who again were the principal farmers, uh, developed a bunch of different varieties for different growing conditions, uh, even learning to freeze-dry potatoes for long-term storage because potatoes have a much higher water content than uh, grains do, and so they need some type of storage technology. Uh, and then finally, the people of the Amazon region not only discovered manioc trees um, growing in the rainforest, but they developed processes to turn the tree's poisonous roots uh, into uh, cassava, what we know as tapioca, between 10,000 and 7,000 years ago. Uh, raw cassava root is toxic. Uh, so in addition to domesticating the plant uh, and discovering it, Amazonian tree farmers actually had to develop technologies, combinations of boiling and drying and chemical leaching uh, to remove the cyanide compounds and to make the manioc useful. Along with rice and wheat developed in Eurasia, uh, corn, potatoes, and manioc are still the most important staple crops in the modern world, uh, feeding billions of people. And we have ancient Native Americans to thank for three of them. Of course, eating nothing but corn, potatoes, and cassava would be a very bland, boring diet. Uh, the indigenous people in central Mexico developed other plants to flavor their food. Uh, various types of hot peppers, beans, and tomatoes um, present in Mexico today were also enjoyed by the Olmecs and the Toltecs and the Mexica and the Aztecs uh, hundreds of years before their first encounter with Europeans. The Mesoamericans also ground cocoa beans and added hot water, peppers, and honey to make hot chocolate. Uh, even today, millions of Latin Americans begin and end their day with a cup uh, prepared in the traditional oyeta with a handheld batidor uh, using chunks of chocolate. Next time, we will begin with a look at uh, these regions of the world in the early modern era. Uh, but before we go, a couple more questions uh, for discussion. Um, why would it matter, do you think, that there were no large animal species in the Americas uh, for the natives to domesticate? What was the significance of that? What were the results of that? Uh, and then last question for this section. Um, is it significant uh, to you, uh, do you think it's significant to history, that most of the people breeding these new staple crops in the Americas uh, were women. Some things to think about. As I said, next time we will get um, more deeply into these cultures in the early modern period, beginning with uh, the center of world population, which, as I've already said, was Asia. So, looking forward to doing that. But in the meantime, I hope this was helpful as a quick review and a scene setting and a background uh, so thanks for listening, and I'll see you again next time.